0: Welcome to the Saxophone History Podcast, a thoughtful, researched, and slightly irreverent look at the history of our instrument. I'm your host, Andrew D. Meyer. This is just the third episode of the Saxophone History Podcast, and I wanted to do something totally different from the first two episodes. Listeners will know that in the first two episodes, we went through a pretty interesting arc of how the saxophone spread from its invention in Belgium in the middle of the 19th century to the hands of Elise Hall in California only a few decades later via uh, an epic battle of the bands at the Champs-de-Mar in Paris and some military excursions in Mexico. I want this podcast to look critically at all aspects of our instrument and to tell the stories of players as diverse as Sigurd Rauscher and Clarence Clemens with the same sort of gravity. I also don't want to just start in the 19th century and move forward chronologically because by the time we get to the 21st century, uh, it'll be like the 22nd century or beyond. Like, you know, we'll just never make it. (laughs) So with that said, we're gonna move forward about a hundred years or so and talk about David Sanborn. On a personal note, when I first started playing the saxophone, my parents got me a cassette tape of The Best of David Sanborn, probably because it came out in 1994, which was about when I would have started playing. I imagine it was probably on one of the big end of aisle cardboard displays at Borders or Barnes and Noble like they used to do, if anybody remembers those uh, big box stores. I'm sure that they just wanted to get me an album of saxophone playing, and that one was probably just the most obvious choice. The tunes like Chicago Song and It's You are some of the first saxophone recordings that I really loved would probably be quite funny to anyone who knows me personally, as my musical tastes run probably uh, just about as far in the opposite direction as it's possible to go. However, as we'll see throughout this episode, David Sanborn has been tremendously influential to many prominent saxophonists of diverse styles. So you may have noticed by now that I haven't introduced a guest, and that's because I'm going to be on my own for this one. The podcast is still kind of new, and uh, to be frank, I haven't decided exactly what the format's going to be. So I'm just going to try this out today uh, as just sort of a solo monologue, and we'll see how it goes. So today, we're talking about David Sanborn. What does that name bring to mind for you? Are you a David Sanborn fan? Do you maybe think of those split-tone, screaming altissimo notes, uh, really bright sound, kind of poppy, smooth jazz playing? I think a lot of people pigeonhole David Sanborn into, uh, into like, one specific thing, and I'm hoping that over the course of this podcast, uh, maybe we'll all come to realize that he's a pretty, uh, pretty multifaceted and interesting player. David Sanborn was born in Tampa, Florida, in July of 1945, and he grew up in Kirkwood, Missouri, which is a suburb on the west side of St. Louis. As a child, he had bouts with polio for eight years, which, while no doubt being a miserable experience, we sort of have to thank for his beginning to play the saxophone, because uh, taking up the instrument was basically prescribed by his doctor in order to strengthen his lungs and breathing ability. I find this kind of interesting. Uh, In our previous episode, we saw that Elise Hall was also prescribed playing the saxophone to help her with hearing loss, uh, somewhat ironically. I couldn't really find any reliable information on how common it was to prescribe wind instrument playing for medical ailments, but given how prevalent polio was and how accessible wind instruments have been, I imagine this is probably pretty commonplace practice in the 1940s. Uh, I did do a, l- a little bit of looking around, and uh, when I was looking for info on saxophone prescriptions, I, uh, I found this very funny passage in a very serious postgrads uh, study titled, quote, Unsafe Sax, Cohort Study on the Impact of Too Much Sax on the Mortality of Famous Jazz Musicians, unquote. It reads, quote, Among famous jazz musicians, playing saxophone is a major health hazard. Other factors associated with higher mortality include, to a smaller extent, playing other woodwind instruments or being of U.S. nationality. Playing more than one instrument or being a band leader has a protective influence. I think mainly they're looking at things like playing in smoky rooms and uh, late night travel, etc. But the wording is is just very funny. I, I think it might also be an indication that universities have way too much funding for post grad programs. <laughs> I don't actually believe that, but I mean, do we really need a peer reviewed study to tell us that being a jazz musician might be bad for your health? Hmm. So anyway. Sanborn contracts polio at the age of three and starts playing saxophone pretty early on. When he's just 14 years old, he was already playing with blues legends like Albert King and Little Milton. Sanborn has said many times that Hank Crawford was his main early influence, particularly the work he did as musical director for Ray Charles. Sanborn went to Northwestern University in Chicago to study music, but transferred to the University of Iowa where he studied with J.R. Monterose. Montrose is kind of an interesting player and kind of telling for the type of player that Sam Bourne would later become. Uh, I didn't really know much about J.R. Montrose at all, but uh, I did a little bit of digging on him and and listened to some of his recorded material. Uh, Montrose spent many years working with territorial dance bands, as was quite common for the time. But he was clearly sort of a cut above the average tenor player. Uh, He also did a stint with Buddy Rich. He was influenced by earlier players like Chewberry and Coleman Hawkins, but also had an interest in bop through players like pianist Bud Powell. And he spent time in Charles Mingus' Jazz Workshop and Kenny Dorham's Jazz Prophets, where he was working in much more modern idioms. I'm only going into all this detail on uh, Monteros because I think this blend of, of three sorts of idioms is reflected in Sanborn's playing as well. Like his teacher, Sanborn clearly comes from a big and lyrical sound tradition, think Hank Crawford, but has Bob sophistication, Uh, think of the harmonic complexity on albums like Another Hand and his later work with Bob James, and also modernist sensibilities, Uh, this would be like uh, his downtown excursions, um, which we'll get into a little bit later. So he he sort of has all, all of these three things in him and he's just very selective on when he shows uh, each side of him, much like his teacher. After school, Sanborn moved to California and in 1967, he joined the Butterfield Blues Band. I think it's pretty interesting that Sanborn moved to California at the start of his career when for so many young players growing up in the Midwest, New York would be the logical move. And certainly in 1967, there was a lot of jazz going on in New York. Miles Davis and Lee Morgan were on the scene, Coltrane was in his later period, uh, the loft scene was just about to begin. It, it's really interesting to me why certain iconoclastic players like Sanborn uh, make the decisions they do that, that sort of go against the grain of conventional wisdom at the time. Like I wonder uh, if he was just seeing all the great playing going on in New York and, and just thought, maybe there's more opportunity for me on the West Coast or, or maybe he just, just liked the weather better there or who knows. So according to the official bio on his website, he moved to California quote, on the advice of a friend, unquote. And in an interview with, uh, with Ethan Iverson on his blog, do the math, which by the way, great blog. Uh, he talks about getting a call from, from a friend called Ted Stewart, who was a drummer and a close friend who said, uh, I'm in San Francisco. I'm in a band. You, you just got to come out there. There's, there's some wild shit happening. So Sanborn goes to San Francisco right at the height of the summer of love. And in that same interview, he describes living in, quote, this kind of commune with this band where each member was strung out on a different kind of drug, unquote. One day while walking down Haight Street, he ran into Philip Wilson, uh, who was a drummer that Sanborn knew from St. Louis, uh, and he would also later go on to be a founding member of, of the Art Ensemble of Chicago. And Philip invites him to hear him play with Paul Butterfield at the Fillmore Ballroom. He later invited Sanborn to come to LA just to hang out in the studio and watch them make a record. So Sanborn took a Greyhound bus and hitchhiked his way south, and Philip eventually badgered the band into letting Sanborn play on the record. So. Basically, how it works for Sanborn, he kind of shows up in San Francisco, and his drummer buddy, Philip Wilson, just like invites him to hang around the band enough, and eventually he gets a shot. And uh, so, apparently, this had been going on for a long time between, between Wilson and Sanborn. According to Sanborn, Philip Wilson had a long history of taking the, the young saxophonist around to the clubs in St. Louis and getting people to let him sit in. About Wilson, Sanborn said, quote, he opened up St. Louis for me and gave me that economical spirit. Then he got me my first real gig and my entree into making a living as a musician. I can categorically state that my life would have had a very different tact if it hadn't been for Philip Wilson. Sanborn stayed with Paul Butterfield for a couple of years and played at Woodstock with him in 1969. The Butterfield Blues Band played from 6 to 6.45 a.m. on Monday morning at Woodstock following an all-night lineup. Jimi Hendrix played three hours later at 9 a.m. I, I guess I never really realized that until I looked this up. I, I just sort of always assumed that Jimi Hendrix was like, you know, eight o'clock headliner on Saturday night or something. But no, he was playing the 9 a.m. Sunday morning slot. Isn't that wild? There's a great video of, uh, of the Butterfield Blues Band playing Everything's Gonna Be Alright at Woodstock with a, a young Sanborn playing in a big brass section. And he's also kind of playing the responses to the vocal lines, like where an electric guitar or harmonica might traditionally fill in. It's a really high energy performance, like just as the sun's coming up in the background, like it, it's cold, you can kind of see their, their breath and stuff. Uh, it's just really cool and uh, you'll be a better person for watching it. So, Sanborn also played on Butterfield's eclectic album, The Resurrection of Pig Boy Crabshaw, which is a, a really creative album with great horn writing and just a fantastic title. The Resurrection of Pig Boy Crabshaw. While maintaining his heartfelt blues roots, Butterfield fused R&B and more expansive jazz soloing together on the album, which, in a way, is kind of a microcosm of Sanborn's career. You know, he's mixing blues and R&B with with longer form jazz and uh, more progressive harmonic ideas. To my ear, Butterfield authentically mixes these elements, and that's what makes the album so great. And I think that same authenticity is what has made Sanborn so successful. After his stint with Butterfield, Sanborn had three major recording opportunities in the mid-70s that I think define what we think of when we think of, you know, sort of the Sanborn sound. First, he toured with Stevie Wonder and played on the track Tuesday Heartbreak on Stevie's 1972 album Talking Book. Then, in 1975, he played on David Bowie's Young Americans and also James Taylor's How Sweet It Is. About young Americans, Sanborn said, quote, there was no lead guitar, so I played the role of the lead guitar. I was all over that record, unquote. He also played with the Rolling Stones during this period, and I, I love that playing with the Rolling Stones is almost like a footnote on his career in the 70s. It's also interesting to note that at the same time that he was touring with David Bowie, Sanborn was also touring and recording with Gil Evans. In a Jazz Times interview, Sam Bourne said, quote, Once, I finished on tour with Bowie at Madison Square Garden and caught a midnight flight to Rome the same night. I got a ride to Perugia, and that night I went on with Gil right after Mingus. I dug that I was able to do both gigs one after the other. It, it wasn't as much of an, as an adjustment as you'd think. I played the same, only the context had changed. My job is to respond appropriately to the context, and then the context has more harmonies happening. You respond to that. Unquote. As Sanborn's career as an in-demand sideman for some of the world's biggest selling artists was hitting its peak, he had a choice to make. Should the saxophonist continue with this lucrative and one would imagine satisfying career of touring all over the world, dividing his time between pop stars like Bowie and jazz legends like Gil Evans, or should he strike out on his own as a soloist? It's at this point that his career takes some pretty interesting turns. While Sanborn's probably best known for the Young American solo and his smooth jazz playing, he also has a side steeped in the avant-garde. As a young player, Sanborn studied with Roscoe Mitchell and Julius Hemphill. It might be easy to suggest that this was just youthful experimentation that soon lost its luster as he moved into more lucrative commercial playing. Except that Sanborn came back to the experimental vein in the late 80s and early 90s, appearing on Tim Burns' 1993 album, Diminutive Mysteries, uh, which is an album dedicated to Julius Hemphill. This is only one year before his Best of David Sanborn album was released, which is largely uh, filled with this kind of highly processed 80s smooth jazz Um uh, And I think that that the timing of these two things coming out together suggests his interest in returning to more experimental playing following a significant output of other highly commercial work. Throughout the 80s, Sanborn had somewhat of a pop slash smooth jazz formula that produced a great deal of commercial success for Warner Brothers. Following the completion of his 1988 album Close Up, which Sanborn describes as, quote, a little too pop for my taste, unquote. He felt he had reached the logical conclusion of that period of work and was in need of inspiration through a change of scene. This came in the form of the TV show Night Music, which Sam Bourne was chosen to host alongside Jules Holland. Have you heard of this show? I was totally unaware of it uh, and it kind of blew my mind uh, finding out about it when, when researching this episode. So Night Music was a novel and eclectic music show that gave a diverse set of musical guests extended time to speak about the roots of their music and explain lyrics and other meanings behind their art. Sam Sanborn played in the house band along with Marcus Miller and Jules Holland as the show played host to guests as diverse as Sun Ra, Sonic Youth, Ubu, Pharaoh Sanders, Bootsy Collins, Alan Toussaint, and Sonny Rollins. The show, which ran from 1988 to 1990, was sponsored by Michelob and it was sort of like a Sunday night musical version of Saturday Night Live. It had, you know, different uh, sort of showcase pieces throughout and then like jam sessions where everybody would kind of play together and they had these like uh, kind of like skits uh, in them, like that some of them are funny and some of them are just like, you know, not. (laughs) But uh, I, I love that, that Sanborn wears his, uh, his Ray Hyman neck strap, you know, like the one you get with all Selmer saxophones. He wears it like it's a fashion accessory when he's hosting and not playing. Like, uh, I think like all like high school band programs used to have like one director who played the saxophone and would like wear their neck strap all day. At least the school I went to had that. So the, the show's tagline was, quote, we've got a vortex of music and love, unquote. And for an example of uh, the kind of lineup that the show would typically host, episode 116 has Sanborn trading with Wayne Shorter as Carlos Santana plays rhythm behind them before Lyle Lovett comes on to sing Here I Am. Just before I started recording this episode today, I was watching an episode that was produced by Paul Simon and uh, features several show pieces with Eddie Palmieri's octet. And his stuff was so rhythmically complicated and dissonant that I just, I couldn't believe that this was basically primetime TV programming, that that this was on. I just can't think of anything even remotely that challenging and virtuosic on TV now. Like it it was just so different. You you gotta go check it out, it's incredible. (laughs) So during one of these super complicated tunes with Palmieri's band, Sanborn jumps in about six minutes in and, and plays this incredible solo. And he's doing like a lot of his split tone altissimo and kind of textural sounds, but then also playing these incredibly searing inside lines where he's just ripping through these really dense and dissonant harmonies. It's a really quirky and fun show. The musicians in the house bands are are just like straight cheesing, you know, they're like smiling at each other and dancing and, and like loving it. It's like really not about being cool or anything. It's just truly about the music, which is... I mean, wild. It's just it's just so different from anything that's on TV now, like music programming where everything seems to be about polish and and slickness and image and and being cool. And and this is just like totally the opposite. And there's just such heavy players. It's so wonderful. And then these like goofy skits that they throw in every now and then, uh, which is a bit like Saturday Night Live. Uh, And on a side note, on the episode I was watching today, um, Jules Holland interviewing Paul Simon is just insufferable, (laughs) but uh, I don't know. You should watch it. It's fun. So this radical change in direction seems to have knocked something loose in Sanborn, and he, he went further afield looking for fresh directions, which he found in the downtown scene, frequently presided over by saxophonist and outside music impresario John Zorn. Sanborn appeared along with altoists Zorn and Tim Byrne at the Knitting Factory playing a program of work by Ornette Coleman. I love that this is, you know, it's just like a couple years after he, he hits just the peak of his 80s, you know, whatever you want to call it, cheese, smooth jazz, just the, you know, that stuff. And, and now he's like, he's downtown playing Ornette Coleman stuff with John Zorn and Tim Byrne. So this period of experimentation culminated in the recording of Another Hand, which is, to my mind, his most creative and most interesting playing on record. Simon for this record include Bill Frizzell, Mark Ribot, Joey Baron, and others who are typically found in uh, slightly less commercially viable projects, shall we say? <laughs> it's it's quite a change anyway from, you know, Sanborn, who's at kind of his commercial peak just a few years earlier, Recording for Warner Brothers to be doing these kind of things. So here we see that that idea from Sanborn about playing with Gil Evans and the context of his playing changing while he remains the same again. On another hand, there's an enormity of space and color. Very different from the sort of funky Marcus Miller bass lines and synth chords heard on many of his 80s albums. Yet it's still really clearly Sanborn on saxophone. I mean, he's, he's unmistakably him. He manages to find a way to sound uniquely like himself, even when the style of the music changes drastically. And I think that's exactly what he was talking about uh, in that quote where he, where he talks about, you know, playing with Bowie or, or whoever it was at Madison Square Garden and then flying to Italy to play with uh, with Gil Evans that same night. You know, he the context of his music changes, but but he doesn't. In 2019, Jazz Times did an article where they asked 17 prominent alto players for a list of 5 to 10 of their uh, favorite players and, and recordings. And not surprisingly, Sanborn was pretty heavily represented in the list. But what I did find a bit surprising was uh, that the more modern players like David Binney, Andrew Dan- D'Angelo, and John Aragon all chose some of Sanborn's most poppy records, like Taking Off and Upfront, as some of their favorites. There's this great quote from Bill Frisell, where he says, uh, quote, he's been imitated so much that maybe people forget that he invented his own sound, unquote. I just thought that was a good quote. I wanted to throw it in. One thing I noticed when I was watching videos of him uh, playing earlier today on the on night music that I'd never really picked up on before was that Sanborn plays with the mouthpiece at a really extreme angle in his mouth. It's almost like a like a clarinet kind of angle. I'm sure that allows him to jump up into the altissimo range so fast, but it's kind of amazing that he can still create that that kind of fatness down low. You know, with that kind of uh, that angle, it's almost like he's like he's lifting the horn with his thumb and his right hand and like pushing it forward, you know, into his top teeth. I think I would just sound like really pinched and thin if I tried to go at it from that angle. Sanborn's newest venture is a series of well-produced videos called Sanborn Sessions that he films in his home studio. He's got some kind of deal with Sweetwater and the videos are, are really well-produced and, and beautifully photographed. Maybe there's some kind of Midwestern connection. I think isn't uh, Sweetwater's based like in like Fort Wayne, Indiana, or something like that. Anyway, the, the playing is, uh, is interspersed with interviews with the musicians who are often kind of just like sitting around Sanborn's kitchen table, like just talking about whatever. And uh. There's some of the faces you'd expect to see there, like Marcus Miller and Bob James and Christian McBride, but also some really interesting people like uh, Cyril Lamy. And Charlie Hunter. In a way, it's a, a bit like a, a more low-key version of the Night Music show that he's hosting at the at the end of the '80s, but uh, you know, kind of brought up to date for uh, like a modern YouTube audience. I hope that he keeps doing that kind of thing and bringing diverse musical voices together in settings where they where they have space to spread out and explore. He's like uh, like 78 years old now so hopefully there's still uh, still a lot more to come from him That's about all I have uh, on David Sanborn for you. I, I think my goal here was to show how Sanborn has all these uh, these different sides and, and is really such an interesting musician. I know a lot of us kind of like pinhole him, pigeonhole him in, uh, as this 80s smooth jazz guy, and obviously that was like a huge part of his output, and you know, however you feel about that stuff, that's cool, I, obviously it was, it was hugely successful and a lot of people love it, uh, I, I certainly like it, it's, it's not, you know, not my favorite stuff, but... I just wanted to show that that he he's got all these other things that are that are to me just as equally interesting and uh i hope this has filled in some some detail and, and color on his life for you so uh, some things to check out from this episode are the butterfield blues band at woodstock that's on youtube uh it's just a you know take 10 minutes and watch it you'll love it uh I, I'd maybe give his album Another Hand a listen, if you haven't heard that. I I just think it's his most creative and and colorful playing. And uh, yeah, it's just great. And I would definitely watch a few episodes of Night Music. They're all on YouTube. I think there's actually just like a whole uh, playlist, like where they're all on in order. And so you can just like plow through them. They're, They're great. It's so wild that that was on TV and that like Michelob was like paying for it it's incredible again sources and links to videos and tunes that we discussed will be available on my website andrewdmeyer.com so thanks a lot for listening and we'll catch you next time